Section 85, The Memo, Part 1. The state of affairs in our product development of windows and services is abysmal. In my memo, Observations, Aspirations, and Directions for Windows and Windows Live. Everyone in their career should have one memo that they think of as their most consequential. For me, it is a memo I wrote after about six weeks on the Windows team. Under intense time pressure to figure out what comes next, with Vista rapidly approaching final release, not formally, but it was soon going to be all but impossible for code changes to make their way into the product, I had to come up with next steps. Over the next four sections, I want to share not just the memo, but more about what it was like to live through a major organizational crisis and work to set things up for building a new engineering culture and new team structure all in a couple of months. The history of Windows releases was cursed when it came to products and leadership. Like Star Trek movies, Windows releases alternated between good and bad, odd and even. Line up the OEM products by availability date and you'll see this is basically true. 3.0, 3 3.1, 95, 98, 98 SE, me, XP, Vista. Compounding this, the curse says, no leader seemed to last more than two major releases of Windows. My neighbor, a successful biotech entrepreneur, asked me about the curse the day he read the org announcement in the Wall Street Journal story saying that I was moving to Windows. He wished me luck. After 140 scheduled one-on-ones, 20 team Q&A sessions, over 30 hours of office hours, and countless hallway conversations in a dozen different buildings, I had to do some thinking and organized what I'd observed, heard, and learned. That meant writing. A dose of reality was needed with Bill G, Kevin Joe, and Steve B, and to some degree, even the board. I did that with a 20-page memo titled Observations, Aspirations, and Directions for Windows and Windows Live. Because for me, writing is thinking, and I really had a lot to think about, hoping others would join in. I felt alone for long enough, and I was certain Steve B was growing increasingly anxious for what would come next. I'd been talking to Kevin Joe constantly over the past few weeks as he was doing a huge amount assuaging those that essentially rejected the idea of an office person leading Windows. The 20 pages were the most difficult I wrote in my entire career to literally put those words down, and I knew they would be impossibly difficult to read. I was deeply concerned that what I wrote would be viewed through the simple lens of setting expectations or painting a bleak picture as possible so that I could be a hero later. It seemed that everyone, especially Steve B, wanted the plan for getting things back on track and a product roadmap. He also wanted to be able to communicate to the field and bring comfort to customers while continuing to support Vista when it shipped. Bill was especially keen to restart dialogues over product investments that had been cut since the Windows Longhorn reset. Kevin was getting his footing across wildly disparate businesses, including the massive money-losing online services. I couldn't kid myself, however, as I too needed a plan. The team was still frantically fixing bugs, but in order to ship by October, that would soon end. The bar for fixing bugs would raise dramatically by summer. Idle hands will make terrible trouble for sure. Projects will start, code will be opened up to changes, and worse, presumptive commitments to outside customers and partners would be made, and so on. All business as usual for Windows. For there to be a release that addresses any challenges, I would need to orchestrate every team 
at a starting project project starting line at the same time in order to finish at the same time. In other words, I only had about four months and one shot to get this all figured out. Adding to the stress, the OEMs were extremely anxious as they were reeling from Vista missing both back to school and holiday selling seasons. They were used to hearing plans or at least slide decks about future releases so they could plan as much as that was worth. A January launch was painful for PC makers, as it meant they had to stock up retail outlets with PCs, unsure if the buzz over a new OS release would dampen holiday sales or not. And then they had to deal with upgrades new customers demanded on those PCs. It was very messy. In round numbers, fiscal 2005 had revenue of about $40 billion and net income of about $15 billion. The Windows OEM business on its own was $12.2 billion, about 30% of Microsoft, and $9.4 billion in net income, about 63% of all of Microsoft. Incidentally, it's not possible using public data to compare these numbers to today's Microsoft as much as some might claim. OEM revenue was highly concentrated in six major and global PC makers, each CEO with a direct line to Steve B and Kevin Joe. My memo solved for none of these immediate issues. Instead, it was a lot of bad news, and in contrast to conventional wisdom or expectations, was less about strategy as it was about execution and culture. It diagnosed, without blame, the situation as I saw it. I provided a ton of data about the organization. I detailed structural problems that I was worried would feel trivial up the management chain. It was not a lot of it was a lot of work to count the number of people and find out how much money was being spent on projects, not just salary. It was disappointing that for all the staff and managers, the most basic controls over dollars and headcount were not in place. Something Brian Valentine, email Brian V, the leader of COSDI, once told me really stuck in my head years earlier. In his inimitable way, he reminded me, there's just a lot of shit going on in Windows all the time. I was fast learning. He meant that in every way possible. There's an old business story usually called the three envelopes about an incoming executive taking over for a dysfunctional team. The outgoing exec offers advice to the successor in the form of three envelopes with instructions saying, when things get tough, open them one at a time. After a bit of time, things indeed got tough. The new exec opens the first envelope, it says, blame your predecessor. They do, and it buys some time. A bit more time passes, and things take a turn for the worse. So the second envelope is opened. It says, plan a reorganization, which improves things. Some more time passes, and desperate for help, the third envelope is opened. This envelope reads, prepare three envelopes. Good grief, I thought. I felt like it'd become the punchline to a business joke. I promised myself I would never blame my predecessors and never did. I went out of my way to avoid that, not only myself, but to remind people of the same. There was no escaping we were going to enter some new era as a team, hopefully for the better. But I was not going to permit our time to be defined as a positive compared to some blameworthy negative. I was troubled, however, because I knew we were going to reorg. I really thought I could get through this change without becoming a living cliche. But as I quickly realized, sometimes a cliche is born out of countless experiences. As it turns out, most of the time to fix a dysfunctional team, 
there's going to at least be changes in leadership, if not structure. With so many of the leaders choosing to make Vista their final release of Windows, I would need to hire replacements. So why not new jobs as well? The memo was a precursor to much larger changes and designed to motivate those changes with facts, not blame. Unlike most reactionary reorgs I'd seen at Microsoft and elsewhere, it was also not based on swinging some business pendulum in the other direction, as is often the case. I continued to be concerned that there was a perception that if we could just get a good strategy deck, then my job would be to do what I do, which is to be a taskmaster. That's not really me, just what people thought. So take a new strategy and execute. The strategy wasn't there, nor would it be. But I viewed that as a third order problem. Besides, strategy without a plan isn't really a strategy. As the saying goes, culture eats strategy for breakfast, often wrongly attributed to Peter Drucker. I was under no illusion that the current team and structure presented with even a perfect product strategy could execute it. The engineering culture was broken. In fact, over the past previous years, while Steve B. had been increasingly leading the company, he embarked upon initiatives that presumed execution was the key problem to address. Key among those was an updated performance review system based on commitments. Everyone was required to document their commitments, goals, and tasks, and share them up and down the management chain for review and approval. On some level, this is a very solid approach. And in startups, the concept often works extremely well, such as the well-known OKR process used at Google in the early days. At scale, however, this type of process too often devolved into people gaming the system with vague commitments or aiming to set low expectations. I wasn't a huge fan. This wasn't really gonna help the team. There was a special difficulty in diagnosing and sharing execution and manager problems to two people who basically never had managers, Bill and Steve. Kevin, on the other hand, was an expert in scale management and a true ally in this regard. In fact, he had clearly orchestrated many more people than I ever had. Adding to the degree of difficulty was to what extent they would, especially Bill, take my assessment personally. I was quite concerned that I would come across way off base on what was needed to change, and even more concerned that this would not go well. Perhaps worse, they would think I was blaming their leadership and Jim Alchin's as well. I was having flashbacks to a mismatched conversation with Steve B about Windows Phone leadership circa 2000 or 2001, and what was needed when Steve was looking to change phone leadership for the third time in as many years. He ended up talking to several product leaders, each saying the same thing. The phone needed a full reboot in team, business, and code to compete with then-leader BlackBerry. There was a mismatch that continued for some time over what to do. Avoiding an early product strategy discussion was important. The easiest thing for execs to do in time of crisis is debate the specifics of product features or marketing. In those discussions, there's a strong desire for a silver bullet, one change, one addition, one synergistic initiative, or one deal. And then to ignore all the realities and externalities and rush to execute that. We were in the midst of a Vista project, which itself was designed around both synergy and silver bullet features, such as WinFS and Avalon. Above all, this would be extraordinarily difficult for me because I'd either been watching or participating in this brewing problem for most of my career. I'd come into this role not thinking there was a Vista crisis, but thinking there was a Windows crisis, one years in the making, with Vista merely the latest symptom. 
it was not just the odd, even cursive releases, but the challenges we had collaborating because of the differing methodologies of the two successful gardens, which was difficult in the best of times. Not only would I have to break free of my own prejudice, but any visible display of prejudice would immediately snowball into a horrible situation that would be perceived as something of a hostile takeover of Windows by Office. Given that always Office was always viewed as the subservient business and technology, this wasn't acceptable. The risk of being rejected outright by the Windows team was very real, and much more so than the external view of the savior arriving. Working to my advantage were the ever-present quality of life challenges the team faced. Most every discussion, one-on-one, team meeting, or small group, was much more about the way work was done rather than what work was done. There was a deep-seated victim complex, and the perpetrators were management at every level, and some specific managers and execs. I abstracted these concerns to what I considered three relatively mundane concepts, the kind found in any management book, and illustrated them for Steve, Bill, and Kevin with some concrete numbers. The details on the services teams were decidedly different than Windows, though the issues were largely the same. In fact, the challenges ended up being identical, just manifested differently owing to the delivery of code and business model more than anything. While I diagnosed these three main areas to work on, areas that would motivate the proposed changes I was going to make, I spent almost five pages on a situation analysis. Writing about the way I saw things at the time, I shared some of the following, summarizing from the original. Engineering skill. Windows has the industry leaders in PC technology, having invented much of it. In industry technologies ranging from Wi-Fi, USB, printing, to Microsoft's own technologies such as Hyper-V or DirectX, the team has unmatched and extraordinary technical depth. Translating that depth into high-performance, secure, robust production code and products has been challenging. The Longhorn Project showed a great deal of technology potential, but across the main initiatives, there was a broad inability at every level to turn those into products. Fatigue. The online services team has been running nonstop for years, releasing every month and spawning new projects but with little in the way of product success or share gains to show. The recent financial results causing a pullback on headcount growth have really left the team shattered. The Windows team is on year five, though optimistically it is only year three since the Longhorn reset. The recent schedule change all but canceled summer and the holiday season for most of the team. The team is fried. Maturity. There's a decided lack of subtlety or nuance in how the team approaches problems. By and large, even the most senior people think and act locally, almost in survival mode. In discussing the situation with senior people, they invariably jump to unsophisticated solutions such as canceling projects or putting groups under a single manager. The idea of both being fiscally responsible and investment-minded is difficult for most to grok. Bloat. The organization is bloated with middle management. There are too many multidisciplinary managers and PUMs, which, as will be discussed, create a deficit of senior engineering leaders. This creates an absurd engineering structure where small groups flail on problems too big to solve, escalating to a PUM who has the sole motivation to keep the decision local for fear of losing control, 
while lacking the personal experience to adjudicate the issue. This bloat also caps the ability of the organization to grow senior leaders. Science projects. The organization is filled with science projects. These are projects operating as though they are building products or product features, but they have little chance of achieving critical mass and even a smaller chance of remaining sustainable over time, if they ship at all. One way to view this is how cool it is to be exploratory and entrepreneurial. The vocabulary used to describe these is always, quote, delivering value to customers, which is far from the reality. These continue despite the broad view of a resource crunch. Hiring. There's a lack of deep excellence in senior leadership for development, testing, and program management, creating a difficult hiring situation. There exists a highly distributed hiring process and a large number of open heads. This pressures relatively junior people who are under the gun to deliver to onboard any warm bodies they can find and in doing so, these hires are often overleveled or overcompensated, creating a downstream fairness problem for the whole organization. The PUM model often drives poor calibration from promotions simply because the PUM sees people only through the lens of a tiny team they are trying to hold together. Competitive fire. There's a curious lack of competitive fire relative to Macintosh, Linux, Google, and Yahoo. There's a broad and vibrant spirit around the concepts of providing software that competes with these companies, but a clear lack of understanding of how what we build stacks up and what we're doing about it. For the most part, this shows as an organizational challenge, since everyone thinks to be competitive, everything must be under one person, and nothing is today. This was particularly odd, as I was already running Linux at home long before this job, and posting unboxing videos of the iMac to YouTube. I saw a few Macs, iPods, or Linux boxes anywhere. In fact, the team was even lobbying to prevent the use of Google Search at Microsoft's firewall. Everyone is aware of these, but thinks competing is the job of a mythical compete team or belongs in a compete lab, not just in daily use. This is not just at the top level, but at every subsystem where the technologies are not aware of how competitive platforms support industry standard technologies. Bureaucracy. The engineering process is loaded with universally accepted, yet loathed and mindless bureaucracy. For Windows, the processes pushed down to teams in the name of security, builds, quality, etc., are not yielding the results, but forcing people to spend creative energy working around those processes, hoping to get just something done. In services, thought and judgment have been replaced by a Rube Goldberg set of performance indicators that themselves would make for a case study in how to make sure things don't get done. Even the most basic corporate administration work from finance to legal to administrative assistance seem overstaffed relative to headcount. Here again, Tiny teams headed by a PUM create excess overhead. I was rather reluctant to share the above. I recognize even today just how harsh and potentially insolent these statements were. Any one of them could be taken out of context as too broad an indictment of too many, or worse, about specific people. For each, I could offer examples of call to, but I so much wanted to avoid this becoming personal. 
I saved specific callouts for things that were clearly going well or simply just stood out relative to these things, themes. It was a brutal list. I remember meeting with Bill G and seeing his felt pen markup, his callouts all over this section of the printed memo, and we debated many points. Steve was deeply in touch with the management challenges, and his silence spoke volumes as I felt he was disappointed to see these findings while also relieved, in a sense, that someone was willing to diagnose and address them directly. The bulk of the memo documented three areas in need of attention. Decision-making, agile execution, and discipline excellence. I presented the situation analysis with supporting facts and data. To avoid being further super negative, I also suggested what our aspirations would be for each of these attributes. Initially, these felt rather anodyne, but soon became rather crisp talking points for what amounted to my stump speech as I began to engage a very small set of people, such as Ray Ozzy, Emil Rozzi, now the chief software architect, and Dave Marquardt, the member of the board of directors. I perceived a consistent feeling of uncertainty over what to do with my assessment. The questions were much more about what to do. When would WinFS get done? Or what should we tell the OEMs? In Kevin Johnson's case, he simply agreed and said we need to just keep moving and asked how he could help. He was so supportive. Decision-making was the first topic to address. Windows was an organization that loved decisions. They loved having decision-making meetings. Bill G and Steve V were always meeting with the team on important decisions. What could I possibly mean by making decisions and what should the team aspire to?